Good afternoon to everyone listening. My name is Eliana Svilik. Welcome to the 11th episode of my podcast, Capital Connections. On this podcast, we are going to explore the intersection between politics, economics, and everyday life. We are going to understand why the flow of money between countries and companies matters. This podcast is an educational initiative with the goal of educating my peers, high school students, on the global economic events that are so relevant to our lives, but schools often neglect to teach fully. Today, we are going to discuss the economic angle of the ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine. This is the third installment in a four-part series about the global ramifications of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In the first two installments, episodes 9 and 10, we covered the political and historical angles of the relationship between Russia and Ukraine, so please check out those episodes for a better understanding of the politics behind the invasion. As always, before we meet our guest, here is some background. Ukraine has long been known as the breadbasket of Europe because of its agricultural success and particularly its grain production. According to ABC News, quote, Together, Russia and Ukraine export nearly a third of the world's wheat and barley, more than 70% of its sunflower oil, and are big suppliers of corn. World's food prices were already climbing, and the war made things worse, preventing some 20 million tons of Ukrainian grain from getting to the Middle East, North Africa, and parts of Asia. Corn, wheat, and Meslin are Ukraine's biggest exports, accounting for around 18% of Ukraine's $52 billion export industry. On the other side of the equation, China, Turkey, Egypt, Poland, and Russia and Germany are the biggest consumers of Ukrainian exports, reflecting the fact that most of Ukraine's export markets are concentrated in Eurasia and North Africa. Prior to the war, Russia was Ukraine's biggest trading partner. Under the Soviet Union, regions of heavy industry were also developed in Ukraine, which produced 17% of the bloc's industrial output. Donetsk, a region in eastern Ukraine, is the industrial heartland of the country and a major producer of steel. Ukraine also produces a great deal of transportation equipment, heavy machinery, agricultural equipment, and chemicals. When Ukraine was still part of the Soviet Union, it was an important arms producer, manufacturing and assembling rockets and naval vessels. In fact, the world's largest missile plant used to be in Dnipropetrovsk, a region in southeastern Ukraine. However, since the collapse of the USSR in 1991, many of these facilities have been repurposed and now produce a variety of goods, ranging from aerospace technology to agricultural equipment. Ukraine is also rich in natural resources, including minerals such as iron ore, which support the country's heavy industry and steel production. In addition to iron, Ukraine has large deposits of manganese, titanium ore, coal, ozakurite, potassium salt, rock salt, and mercury, among other metals. Petroleum and natural gas reserves can also be found throughout the country, though mining has exhausted much of that supply. The extensive energy supply initially warranted the creation of pipeline transport systems within Ukraine, but now the most important pipelines flowing through Ukraine connect Europe to Siberian gas and oil fields. 
Throughout the war, Russia has used Europe's dependence on Siberian natural gas as a weapon, decreasing and even completely shutting off the energy supply to increase the pressure on the Soviet Union. Here to help us understand the economic component of the Russia-Ukraine war is Dr. Yakov Fagan, who is currently Associate Director at the Bergeron Institute and Associate Editor of Noma Magazine. He is involved in the Bergeron Institute's Future of Capitalism project, with a focus on the politics and economics of post-Soviet states. Before joining the Bergeron Institute, Dr. Fagan was a fellow in history and policy at the Harvard University Kennedy School of Government and managing editor of the Private Debt Project. He has a PhD in history with a focus on economic history from the University of Pennsylvania and is currently working on a book, Building a Ruin, the International and Domestic Politics of Economic Reform in the Soviet Union. In addition, Dr. Fagan has taught courses in international political economy, money, and banking and business history, as well as held fellowships from the Institute for New Economic Thinking, the Fulbright-Hayes Doctoral Dissertation Research Abroad Program, Harvard University, and the University of Pennsylvania. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So to start, I wanted to ask you what drew you to studying and writing about the political economy of post-Soviet states. Well, so I did my doctoral work on modern, say, Russian history, particularly economic history, and in the Soviet period. But I did that mostly because I'm actually quite interested in capitalism. I always like to joke that when you study the former USSR as when it was the USSR, you learn a lot about capitalism because it's kind of a null hypothesis. It's technically how you're exactly what you're not supposed to do, yet it somehow worked for a while. By looking at the institutions that are missing in that system and then the attempts to build those, it teaches you a lot about other systems. It gives you a really good intuition. Okay. Thank That's you. Why that- and then for the other object, you know, reason, which is I come from that region. I was born in that region and it was kind of like, just kind of fell into it. <laughs> that's the real reason. Yeah. Okay. So that's very interesting. Thank you. I wanted to start off by talking about the war's impact on the Ukrainian economy. How has the physical fighting, blockades, and bombing impacted Ukrainian industries such as agriculture and steel production? Well, look, I'll preface this by saying I'm not a specialist in the Ukrainian economy, contemporary Ukrainian economy, but it's pretty obvious that the economy is, there's some statistics I've seen that there's GDPs down by 40%, if not more. That's understandable. We're looking at something that hasn't really happened in the last 30, 40 years almost, which is a large scale war between two industrial powers. And this award that's affecting all elements of Ukrainian society. It's incalculable to think through the losses because we're not even understanding the long-term impact on human capital just from the loss of lives. So really the flower of a country's population, young people, people who should be in their peak work years, people who are often very highly educated. It's hard to put a number on that. I I completely agree. Ukraine has only been able to export around 2 million tons of grain per month since the war began, which is around a third of its usual 6 million tons per month. So what is the impact of just the massive grain shortage on the Ukrainian economy? So the grain issue is 
complicated. For it is a massive revenue loser, right, for the Ukrainian economy. More specifically, right, the real issue of the gr- loss of grain is what it's doing to client states, places that are importing that grain, because loss of that trade due to the Russian blockade is very dangerous. Now, I'm not sure if you've seen this today in the news, the Turk, uh, Turkish government announced that they've reached a deal to deblockade or do some kind of grain corridor out of Ukraine. We'll see how that plays out. I don't know if that'll happen. If that won't happen, it's been announced by one by the Turkish side, but neither Russian or Ukrainian side. So we don't really know. There are other efforts to get the grain out through rail transport by opening up ports that haven't been used in the Danube for a while because they're just not economically efficient compared to the port of Odessa. But all of those are not sufficient to get get the output out, at least for now. And what's that do, what that's doing is, you know, obviously raising the overall global grain price, but it's also spurring bigger than neighbor policies from other grain exporters that are now, especially themselves, sometimes price sensitive and are now actually hoarding the grain and making the situation worse. It's creating a lot of uncertainty. Right. So we will definitely dive into the impact of the damage to Ukraine's key industries on their client states in a second. But one last question on specifically just Ukraine's economy and the impact of the war. What are the long-term impacts? Is there a chance that the Ukrainian economy will be able to, I wouldn't say easily, but relatively quickly bounce back from this damage? So that's a very good question. Economic recoveries from war are difficult, but they're not impossible. And oftentimes they're extremely quick, much faster than we think. And that requires, it requires a couple of things. One is a lot of pre-war strong economic institutions, which Ukraine was developing, I think, relatively slowly, but it, it was improving, right? I think there was improvement, but it didn't have them. And so Ukraine is going to be stuck in a very difficult position, which is both rebuilding and recon- and constructing a whole new political structure that lives behind the economy, you know, with anti-corruption measures, deoligarchization, and an attempt generally to build out a much more, you know, nimble economy. It's very hard to do both at the same time. And I think we have to be patient with that. So it's going to also depend, obviously, on foreign aid. But I think the most important thing that needs to happen is to integrate the economy well into the European economy, the larger European supply chain. And that's also very difficult, right? Because that economy is in flux in and of itself, not only due to the war, but for other structural reasons. And there's a lot of talk, you know, about the Marshall Plan and how successful it was. The thing is, we have a very skewed or in the popular understanding of the Marshall Plan is very skewed. The Marshall Plan's main contribution, you know, it wasn't a massive amount of money or mass amount of grants. It was more that the money was conditioned on particularly integrating most of the European states around a recovered West German industrial system. And that system in and of itself was actually, it was damaged by the war, but it still had a long leg, industrial legacy. With Ukraine, the challenge is much more difficult because you have an industrial system that is still needs to integrate into a larger kind of 
trade ecosystem. And it's also being destroyed at the same time. Right. So as I mentioned in the background, and we've discussed already, Russia and Ukraine together export around a third of the world's grain. So what has been the impact of the grain shortage on Ukraine's traditional customers, which are mostly concentrated in Europe, Asia, and the Middle East? Right. Well, like what we're seeing is a massive problem with grain price increases. And that is going to create food insecurity in some places, especially in the Middle East, where you already have pre-existing food insecurity uh, vulnerabilities to that supply chain. Again, as I said, maybe that'll be resolved, uh, but the damage is there. And to a certain extent, openly, Russia has talked about kind of using a food crisis and the price increases from that as leverage to build up to, uh, to force capitulation from Ukraine's Western partners to force the Ukrainians to a weaker position around the negotiating table. Again, I think the real thing I'm scared about is once this doesn't resolve, countries that should step in to fill the void due to the fundamental uncertainty of the situation will not do that and will instead hoard. Which countries in particular are you thinking of? You know, I was thinking like there are, India could be exporting a lot more grain. It should be, but it's now very economical for them to do it, but they have their own, they are themselves quite nervous about having food price shocks. So not as much exports as we potentially see. Now, there are ways to fix this, but it would take quite a bit of global leadership from someone. Could you expand a bit on those ways? Yeah, I mean, the, the most the best way to do this would be to try to at least get all the grain producing states around a table with the clients and try to build out a common grain pool in which you are at least essentially do what the Allies did during World War I, purchase all the grain together under one roof from a common pool instead of having countries, comp- instead of having competition between these things. And that might mean just like buying out the world's grain harvest and then issuing out based, reselling it based on credits. But that's a very radical solution, but it is one. Yeah. So you've talked a bit about this, how the grain shortage has led to price inflation and none of the other countries that could be stepping in are. Do you foresee that the grain market will rebound after the war? I, I'm not foreseeing anything. I'm not a grain market specialist. Okay. We just don't know. We just don't know. Okay. That makes sense. So there have been reports throughout the last few months that the Russians have been stealing Ukrainian grain and selling it themselves to their allies in Asia and the Middle East. So China, India, Syria. Is there any merit to these claims? And is it an organized effort taken on by the army or is it more just sporadic? I'll take the second question first. It might be, but we don't really know yet. We don't know a lot about Russian decision-making right now. We don't know a lot about Ukrainian decision-making either. There's a lot of rumors, but we, we don't know. In terms of merit, yeah, no, there's definitely merit to that. The Russian grain production is supposedly through the roof in what has been actually generally a bad harvest year, as far as I understand. And, you know, th- th- that's coming from somewhere. Uh, that's at least one, like, big macro kind of overview. And, you know, I'm not a commodities trader by profession, but that's what I'm hearing. We certainly are seeing, like, fairly good rush. We're seeing rush ship activities. It's certainly happening. So... 
Russia is one of Ukraine's biggest export markets, taking in over 5% of Ukrainian exports in 2020. How has the war impacted trade relations between Russia and Ukraine? Well, they don't exist anymore, as far as I understand, right? It's a war. But this gets actually to a point I was trying to make earlier. You know, one of the long-term problems for Ukraine and for for the post-Soviet zone as a whole is what this and is doing to essentially disarticulate trade relationships, right? Russia is a big economy in that zone and, the tra- and there is a lot of trade weight there and Russia's, and that's increasingly not going to be there anymore. This is a larger problem, I think, of the post-Soviet transition that isn't often commented about is you have an economic zone that's integrated, that has trade networks that's broken apart, right? And that's not just extending to the Soviet Union, but to Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe, for many reasons, kind of is integrated into the Western European trade system, right? And has its own niches it fills. Ukraine would like that because it also promises structural reform and other things. It's a symbol. But doing that at the same time as navigating the disarticulation of a Soviet system, a post-Soviet system in a war is extremely hard. Um, It's daunting. And uh, I I can't even imagine what the cost of reconstruction is going to be, not in terms of monetary costs, but just the difficulty of having to try to place Ukraine somewhere, somewhere in an existing economic order. And it was being done. They were very hard before the war, even harder after. Right. So one of the main goals, I think, behind uh, this war has been to distance Ukraine from the West. Would you agree with that? I think there are a lot of reasons this war started. Okay. I don't know if distancing is the right way I would put it. I think it is to... It's both, it's, it's to secure domestic regime security, it's there for ideological reasons. For, there, there are just such a variety of reasons this war could start. And here's the thing, it, it didn't start in February. I mean, this war has been kind of simmering since 2014, let's be honest here. And part of that is to try to kind of retain Russian influence over Ukrainian internal politics, right? Right. So before we go further... Would you mind telling my viewers and me why you think that this war started? I think this war started for a variety of reasons. I think the proximate reason is very hard to determine. I think it's very it lies very much with Vladimir Putin about why he made the decision to do it now. I can speculate as to why. What I think happens in the long run is Vladimir Putin you know, when he was very successful, the successful Putin comes when he's kind of a kind of intermediary and manager of different groups in the government, in the Russian government, and has access, and because of that has access to a lot of information. So he's kind of stage managing rivalries. That's been less and less, I would say, he, he's withdrawn from that role quite a bit as the Russian political system itself has become smaller and smaller and smaller, and there are fewer and fewer players in it, except for Putin. 
he's completely withdrawn from domestic policy as far as I understand it, uh, as, as far as we think. And as his circle becomes narrower and more focused on foreign policy, he has less information and he has a lot more bias confirmation. And that probably accelerated during the pandemic where you know he was very isolated. And that's, I think, the proximate reason is there was a kind of this idea of a long-term Ukrainian problem in Russian politics. Well, and a military solution of this extent, probably the proximate cause is probably Putin having an increasingly narrow information set and an increasingly narrow group of people he's talking to who have their own sets of interests. And by the Ukrainian problem, it's a multifaceted one, or at least from the Russian point of view. Russia's preferred relationship with Ukraine for both you know, imperial ideological reasons, for security reasons, though I think those are much more secondary than people think. And for economic reasons, again, I think those are much more secondary than kind of the regime's own internal ideological coherence and personal biases. I think that Ukraine prop problem has existed for a while and the preferred solution to it is for kind of its relationship to be something to Russia to be something like Belarus. Right. And I do think that Putin thought that and the Russian elite thought, or at least the very small circle of Russian elite that actually probably put this invasion together because we also know that the Russian elite that I think brigade commanders didn't know it was actually going to happen until at least a few weeks before the war started. You know, they thought that this was going to be a very easy issue due to internal problems in Ukrainian politics, which are very turbulent. And they thought, you know, and they thought wrong. <laughs> okay, so that's very interesting to me. And one of the things that you mentioned is that Putin has sort of removed himself from domestic politics. Yes, I think so. Who or what group of people perhaps have replaced him? So the Russian political system is kind of very articulated around the presidential administration within it. And, you know, Mark Gileotti, he, who is a really great scholar of contemporary Russian politics, he uses this term adhocracy to describe it, which I think is really beautiful. Because it's very hard to say who runs what. People, there's a whole informal state that sometimes people's roles correspond to what they do. Sometimes they don't. Uh, there's a lot of entrepreneurship in Russian politics. So, for example, right now you will see like mayors and governors trying to prove their worth by raising volunteer battalions. That's clearly not in their competency, but there we go. You see a lot of fluidity between what are private military companies and the military, et cetera, et cetera. It's very hard to say who runs domestic politics for what. You know, the prime minister Mishustin is like trying to build a system, I think. He's like quite a competent kind of system builder, uh, technocrat, but political technocrat, but I don't think there's one weight, right? It's very hard to say. It's very fluid. Okay. As okay. you know, and who, who runs the American domestic politics, right? Good question. Yeah. Uh, everyone has a different opinion on that. Yeah. Any political systems complicated, and particularly a Russian one. Okay. So at this point, I want to pivot a little and talk about economic sanctions that have been leveled against Russia, particularly by 
largely by Western countries. What does it mean to sanction another country and what are economic sanctions? Well, a sanction is a you know legal instrument not to conduct certain kinds of economic transactions with another country to try to have some policy effect. And well, in particular, what we're dealing with right now are actually like large packages of multiple measures. I think you could, there are financial sanctions on access to financial capital and Russian access to foreign currency, foreign currency reserves. I think there are uh, trade sanctions that I think are actually far more interesting than that on Russian imports of certain technologies. And then there are certain export sanctions, right? Uh, I, I think that imports actually is a more inter- is one of the most most interesting ones of what's happening now, which is different than before. That actually touches on my next two questions, which are: what are the sanctions that have been imposed, and how do they compare to sanctions that the West has imposed in the past, such as in 2014? Yeah, I mean the scale is just uncomparable to 2014. Like I, I think the kind of big shock and awe of the sanctions packets that began in February, March, was that they froze correspondent accounts, central bank correspondent accounts, right? Like Russia's central bank liquidity in foreign currency, right? Which you need to intervene in the market for as a central bank that's not the Federal Reserve because the Federal Reserve can do whatever it wants. It's the dollar, it's the king. It, it, it eliminated those. It restricted their access. It restricted access to repaying debt. It restricted access of Western financial institutions of clearing with Russia. That was a big shock and awe. I think the more more interesting parts of that are of what happened compared to 2014 is just the massive amount of coordinated across multiple states, not only in the United States and Europe, but in countries like Taiwan, in South Korea, restrictions on imports of high technology. There's another layer to this, I think, which is really interesting, is that one of the tools of sanctions, you could say tools or unintended consequences too, is overcompliance, right? There are many companies that have withdrawn from Russia or are trying to withdraw from Russia, even though the sanctions shouldn't be directly affecting them. It's considered too high a risk, too high a PR risk, too high a financial risk, too expensive to transact with it. And you're seeing, you know, McDonald's, you know, let's say that way, McDonald's pull out out of Russia isn't directly because of sanctions. It is because of the environment that the sanctions created, right? It's this, the term's called overcompliance. Right. So you mentioned that the sanctions that have been imposed in response to this war are much more coordinated than they were, for example, in 2014. What do you think has led to that unity and coordination? I, I think there are a couple of things. I think there the scale of this as a war and as a violation of international norms is just orders of magnitude higher. And I think there was a shock effect to many European states who kind of thought that war is a thing of the past. You know, we don't live in history anymore to go, oh no, it's going to affect us too. I, I think that shock is shouldn't be underrated. And I think, I often think that Russian commentators are underrating it when you listen to them. I don't think they realize kind of just how how much they've shocked the populace. And so that's one, that that's a huge part of it. I, I, I think there was a lot of deaf diplomacy behind the scenes as well. 
Thank you for that explanation. So what is the goal of these sanctions? What exactly are they trying to achieve? So that's a really good question. I think it's unclear. I think there are things they are achieving and then there are things there, but what they're trying to achieve is unclear, right? I think there's this belief that sanctions would cause this immediate economic collapse in Russia, that it would create rebellion or weaken Putin's regime instantly. That's just not true. In some regards, they might actually have the opposite effect, a rally around the flag effect. What I think they do do is they degrade in the long run Russia's capacity to modernize and to keep up with current uh, technologies And slowly but surely, they will be forcing Russia into a much more difficult economic situation. Now, what that means politically is it it restricts the amount of choice space for Russian domestic policy and Russian foreign policy. And that's going to press more and more and more, and it'll put the government into having to make harder and harder choices, like between guns and butter between allocating medical uh, supplies, those will play out in unpredictable ways. What these sanctions do is they force unpleasant choices onto the government. How those will play out is really a good question that we do not know. We don't know. There are many, many cracks in the system that could emerge. I'll give an interesting example is that sometime in March, there was a reporting from uh, Russian newspapers talking about problems in the in the food in the processing industry, particularly bread making, because large-scale industrial mixers they use to make bread are manufactured in Europe and they need spare parts. And Russian industry isn't you know precise enough to build those spare parts. So those like let's say you know the food processing industry in bread is going to eventually have problems. The aviation industry like quite infamously is having massive problems, right? They're, they don't produce their own planes. All the leases have been terminated, uh, not no spare parts, et cetera, et cetera. So they're flying planes pretty illegally. They can't fly to many places because if they land, the planes will be seized because planes are leased from usually Western plane leasing companies. That's how the aviation industry works. And those leases have been canceled and they don't have the spare parts for those commercial aircraft, right? So they're going to start cannibalizing. So there we go. The, there are all these unknown factors that are going to be pressing from many sides the longer this comes in, and they'll have to make harder choices to adapt. Okay, thank you. So to wrap up our interview today, I want to end with one last question, which is that the Russian economy definitely took a hit, but it seems to have rebounded quite well. The Russians are not complaining too loudly about these extensive sanctions. Why do you think that is? So I would not put much weight onto ruble strength as an indicator of anything because of the sanctions. Russia is still exporting. That's unavoidable. But what it's not importing. And if you're exporting more than you're importing, your currency's value goes up. But you're not importing vital things. So that creates problems. Now on how the sanctions have not created complaints. I don't know. That's not true. There are increasingly social problems in Russia during, uh, due to sanctions every day. And I think they're going to accelerate into the fall and winter. Okay. I don't know if that's true. Now, what the political impact of it is 
quite uncertain. It could have paradoxical impacts, right? Like a lot of people have lost jobs, but that's also made military recruitment easier. Right. So again, these are blunt instruments there they, in many cases, but again, they create difficult choice spaces for the Russian government to work in domestically and internationally. Okay, thank you so much for your time today. No problem. For your expertise. Nice to speak to you, thank you. You too. Bye.